Good morning, everybody. Daniel said in the welcome as the service host, he said, uh, we're in for a great word today. That puts just pressure on me, Daniel. Thank you. We'll shoot for good today. How about that? I remember when uh, I was younger and my son, my oldest son, who's now 19, almost about to turn 20, he was probably like, you know, nine years old, uh, roughly what, third grade or so. And I was doing a chapel at his school. So it was like his moment to have dad come in and speak, you know, and like he was all excited, but probably nervous because, you know, it's dad. And I was in the room waiting for his class of about 30 kids and a couple more classes, probably about 90 people total. And as he filed in with his friends, he looked over at me. Again, I'm about to speak to his class. He looked at me as he walked past me and goes, hey, dad, be funny. <laughs> and just the pressure sometimes to be his dad and to be funny, it just, I just will like let us in, out in the July sun. It's just too much for me. But I do hope for a good word. We're in Philippians, which is a book about joy and it's paradoxical joy. You know, there's joy that's because of you. Something good happens to you and you experience joy. And there's joy in spite of something. A lot of things are going wrong. There's emptiness and futility and pain. But yet there's joy, joy in spite of. And that's the deeper joy. And I think that's the joy that uh, entices us and beckons us in this letter written so long ago um, in the letter of Philippians. So here, here's what I want us to do today. I want to, I'm going to build up. Now, last week we looked in Philippians 1 at one verse, and we just like, we had a real simple structure. We just took Philippians 1, 6 and went phrase by phrase as we talked about gospel enjoyment and this really great truth that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will complete it in the day of Christ. God, our God is a starter. And what joy, because you are not finished yet. He's working on you. Uh, he, he, it, it took him a while, right, to, to create you and to create the world. And, and uh, he put thought and detail into things. But he's not done with you. He's working on you. And that ought to bring you joy. God is a starter and he's a finisher. We're not good at closing. I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago. He said, RG, I'm just not a good closer, which is terrible because he's in sales. But uh, I thought, man, I'll just pray for you for another occupation. But anyway, like God is both a starter and a finisher. He doesn't need anybody to come out of the bullpen. Uh, he's not icing his sore shoulder in the dugout. He is a complete game finisher. And he will finish, finish what he wants to do in you. And that is a cause of great joy. And we uh, closed the sermon last week. If you were here, I had a chance to listen online with Allie Mellon of Hard Places Community, one of our strategic partners, as we wove in gospel, community, and mission, our three values as a church. And she talked about that idea of the gospel, this good news going invading dark spaces at the epicenter of human uh, sex trafficking over there. And the part that we can play through our involvement, through our generosity, in up making a difference uh, over there. So last week, simple structure, phrase by phrase. This week, I'm going to build a little bit. Uh, no one's going to go to sleep on me, but I'm going to talk a little bit of history, and I'm going to set it up, and then we're going to read these words from Philippians 2. I believe some of the most sublime words ever written about our God, and we will get there. Let me ask you to do this as we start today. Look at yourself. Like, actually look at yourself. Look, Just look at your body. Look and kind of see what you got on so you'll know the answer uh, to this question. But how many of you are wearing anything of gold today? You've got on a gold ring or a watch or a bracelet or a necklace or you got some gold fillings up in your mouth, right? I, some, some of you do. I see you. I see you out there. Um, 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. It says this controversial passage. I'm going to swing a bat at a hornet's nest right from the beginning. Likewise also that women, this is Paul's advice to Timothy, they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold. Okay? So look, women, if you have gold, I want you to just take it off now and pass it to the center aisle. Our ushers are going to pick that up, okay? And we want to be a fully functioning biblical church, okay? So I think you know this, but let's just breathe easy, okay? This is true, but this was a uh, specific cultural instructions to a particular church setting in that day. But here's why I want to talk to you about gold this morning, because gold was discovered, it was founded in the ancient world some 2,500 plus years ago in Macedonia. And gold uh, had, as we all know, then and now, of course, it has great value. And then it was just eye-popping for its beauty, uh, its scarcity, its unique density. It could be melted and formed and measured, and thus it was a tradable commodity. And gold, standardized gold and silver coins, replaced the barter system. Are you guys, you ever studied the barter system where you just walk into a market and you say, hey, I'll take that for this, and you're taking like the shirt off your back, and you're just doing a trade that two people agree is a somewhat comparable or equal. But standardized gold and silver changed things. And it changed this community in Macedonia, a community called Philippi. And it was uh, King Philippi was the king at the time. And he used this gold to his advantage. He mined it and he had slaves who worked in the mine. Now slavery uh, then, slavery is never good. Slavery then was particularly brutal. Some of you know in the ancient uh, cultures, as cities are uh, evacuated and discovered, uh, it has been determined that m many times over people will choose suicide over becoming captured and enslaved to another group of people. Slavery was particularly brutal and mining uh, the gold mines back then was particularly so. A very short, brutal, uh, terrible lifespan uh, would ensue. But King Philippi at the time, he put a garrison. He so treasured this gold that he put a garrison around this city, this village, and he named the city uh, after himself, the city of Philippi. Kings do that sort of thing. Don't think they've got that ego. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a garrison around this. I'm going to guard the gold. I'm going to enslave the slaves. They're going to work for me. I'm going to take advantage of this, this new element, this product that can be uh, measured and that, that can be fired up and that can be formed and fashioned and used for great wealth. And I am going to use it. I'm going to call this city Philippi after me. And then we discover he discovers painfully in his own life that his gold, that his wealth, does not bring him love. In fact, it brings him an assassination. And he, his empire, the empire of King Philippi, it is taken over by his son. And everybody in the room has heard of King Philippi, of Macedonia's son. It is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, all this gold from this city of Philippi was used to fuel and fund Alexander the Great's armies of which he used to conquer the world. And some of you know, King, oh, Alexander the Great died at the young age of 32. So if you're in your 40s or if you're in your 40s or 50s and haven't accomplished much like conquering the world, uh, you feel bad about yourself, right? But Alexander the Great, he did all that. He died at the age of 32, and into this uh, 
into this world, this Roman world, appeared Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was in a battle, a battle for Rome. And he took on guys like Cassius and, and Brutus, and they died a terrible death at, at his hands. And it was this battle of Philippi that has sort of marked what, what the struggle, not just between individuals and Caesar Augustus, but the struggle at the time between the Roman Republic, which had ideas about democracy, and the Roman Empire, which said, one man rules the world. And into this, Caesar Augusta is living his life and ruling the world. And notice this, this has uh, interesting implications for this new gospel message of Jesus being birthed and bearing fruit in this world. It says this about uh, Augustus, there was emperor worship in that time, and it was new. Augustus is a savior for us and those who come after us. The birthday of the God of Augustus was the beginning of glad tidings. This found on an inscription in 9 B.C. This word there in the Greek for Savior, or rather for glad tidings, means evangelism. It means good news. You see, the Romans used it before the church used it. This message of good news. And so we are in this city of Philippi, a strategic place, a strategic place because it has gold, a strategic place because it is a gateway from Rome to Asia and to the rest of the Middle East. And into this city of Philippi, there are important people known as citizens. Now, bear in mind that Philippi is, it's in Macedonia, and so it's a Roman colony. And those there, not many Jewish people there, but those there were beholden to Rome. So they had rights and privileges, and they bore the responsibility to reproduce the Roman way of life. What was this Roman way of life? It was emperor worship, and it was a vertically arranged society. There was a social hierarchy in the day. And make no mistake about it, you knew where you were in the hierarchy. Now, let me ask you today, is there a hierarchy in our world today? Is there a class system in America? Do you think there are people who are on the bottom and there are people on the top and there are ways that we physically manifest this? And are, are there places, I wonder where the church fits into this, but are there places where that system is not readily apparent, where it's not noticed, where it's not known, where it's not Worship, it's not valued, treasured, or important. And in this Roman rule, there was the emperor who was worshipped at the top. Democracy trying to get its way in, participatory management and leadership and the rights and values of all people and people being equal. It was trying to get its way in. But Caesar Augustus and this vertical arrangement and this social hierarchy, it was, it was running rampant. It was the thing of the day. So here is this hierarchy. We'll put them up one at a time. If you study Roman culture, the Greek culture of the time, you'll see this. There were people at the top, and at the top below the emperor himself was the Senate. And the Senate was made up of, give or take, it was made up of 600 men. And in this Senate, there were, it's a little more complicated than this, I'll get into it in a minute, but there was even a caste system 
or a ladder in the Senate with people vying for supremacy, jockeying for position, looking to be more important, looking to move up, to climb the ladder. In the vertical arrangement, in the social hierarchy, recognition and honor and status is what it's all about. And if you weren't the emperor, you wanted to be in the Senate. You were at the top to be one of these 600 men. And below the the Senate was the equestrian. And the equestrian were people who owned a lot of land and they owned the right kind of animal. What would you guess the equestrian class in the Roman world, what would you guess that they owned? This is, I'm putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. You can say this one out loud. They owned horses. And to have a horse for battle, to have a horse for pleasure was a really important status thing in those days. Now, can you imagine using some mode of transportation to show how important you are? I mean, right, can you imagine, like, we would never do that. We would never have rap songs where it says, uh, give me the keys to the bins, right? We would never do that in our day and time. But they did back then, how silly they were. And after them, just below the equestrian was a group known as the Decurians. And the Decurians were citizens, okay? So the Decurians, of course, the equestrians, and for sure the Senate, these were people who were citizens. And as citizens, they had all the rights of citizenship, reproduce the Roman way of life, Climb the ladder, reinforce the ladder. It's all about the ladder, your title, your name. Look, when they have uh, excavated cities and they found tombstones, they found a person's title before their name each and every time. The Decurians were next. And then after them was a group called the Freedmen. And the Freedmen, they were free, but they didn't have the rights of citizens. They were less of the people. They were looked down on. They had to be careful when it came to the rule of law in that world. Could you imagine? And then the last, before we put it up, guess. Who's on the bottom? Anybody want to guess? The slaves. The slaves are on the bottom, and they have no rights. No rights whatsoever. Terrible existence. Here's what Plato, one of the great thinkers in the Roman world said at the time, he said this, he asked a question, how can a man be happy if he is a slave to anybody at all? Climb the ladder, reinforce the ladder. Thank God you're not at the bottom of the ladder. Mark Anthony, not the one that married Jennifer Lopez who later divorced her, but Mark Anthony, he insulted Caesar Augustus one time by saying, listen to this, by saying your great grandfather was a rope maker and a freedman. Now, that was a witty insult back in the day. But think about that. Think about that. And it happens in the human heart today. Like if someone ascends to something and we think, oh, you're not that important or look where you came from. What an insult to remind him, hey, you're not a person of tremendous status. You're going to fall again because here, here's what you came from. Here's who you really are. And so into this world, into this world, In just a moment, we are going to read the sublime words that Paul gave to the early followers of Jesus. But let's talk, before we read these important words, let's talk a little bit more about this vertical arrangement, this social hierarchy, this climbing the ladder of recognition and status and honor. How was it seen? We've touched on a few but I want to share with you just a few. One is there were, uh, it was really important where you sat. Now, how many of you, when you come to church, like you're going to sit where you sit? Just raise your hand, okay? We know we've identified some of you 
this summer, can I just say, I love you. I love you guys. Like it really means a lot to me. And I know, you know, in the, when college students are here and families aren't traveling as much, we have a 930 service and 11. And I, some of you, I'm looking for you, right? Like I like those of you who kind of have your area. And back a couple of months ago, I did the funeral of my 100 year old grandmother. And I learned, and this is new to me, I knew a lot about her, but I didn't know that when uh, someone, when she came to church at Belmont United Methodist Church and someone was sitting in her seat, she never missed a Sunday, she would ask them to get up. She would say, this is my seat, all right? So godly woman, she's with Jesus now, but like, don't be that person. But I do love you, right? If you have your seat. Now, it is your seat, right? But listen, it's not a seat of honor. It, it may be to you, but it's not for us, right? It's not a seat of honor. In those days, the auditoriums that they found remains and ruins of, they would see that where the Senate sat, they would see uh, where the equestrian sat, right? They would see where the slaves were not allowed entry or what they had to do for the event in the auditorium or whatever it was. And you know this, but in biblical times like the South today, feasts were really important, right? Getting people together and eating good and sitting around the table. But in our day, for the most part, seating is based on what? First come, first serve, and then the ticket price. When did you... When did you buy your ticket? Susan and I were asked a couple of months ago before the election to come to someone's house in Northeast Jackson to uh, be a part of a fundraising dinner. We said yes because we were going to vote for the guy and we wanted to support them and the family. And then we, as we were driving to this beautiful home in Northeast Jackson, uh, we noticed that it was a $500 a plate fundraising dinner. And we just went on and uh, we texted him and said, hey, we, the Lord is leading us to not pay $500. <laughs> But if you want us to continue driving, we're like a mile from the house. We'll be there and uh, be a, a part of that. But hey, look, seating is based on what you pay. It's based on when you show up. But back then, the hierarchy really was very pronounced and appreciable. And the important people had their place. And the, 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 the person of honor, if it was the emperor or the or senator himself, he would have the really important person to the right and the really important person to the left. Anybody remember a conversation between the disciples, James and John? Some of you are nodding your head, all right? You know where I'm going with this one. And they ask him at one point, they say, hey, Jesus, jockeying for position. They say, hey, Jesus, when you enter into glory and we enter into glory because we're riding on you, and when we're with you in glory, can one of us, would you say it so now, like can we get it in writing, Jesus, where one of us will sit at your right and one of us will sit at your left? And do you now know that they weren't just wanting to be close with Jesus? They were wanting a seat of honor. And doesn't it tell you a lot about humanity when we learn that the other disciples grew angry with James and John? Right? That says probably just as much about them as it does about James and John. And there was this seat of honor. And in this, this honor status recognition society, it was very important. And so were clothes. Do you know what citizens wore, the really important people wore? Unfortunately, some of you have worn this to a fraternity party and the night probably ended badly. You don't want to think about it in church, but they wore togas. And togas for us is an occasional college bad wardrobe choice, right? That probably involves some alcohol and other poor choices. But back then, togas were only worn by 
the aristocrats, only by the important people. And there are some things about a toga. It, it, it keep you uh, hot in the summertime and too cool in the wintertime. And there was something different about the right arm than the left arm. But it was, a, it was an article of prestige. It was something to wear a toga. It symbolized to others that you're in and that others were out. If a toga wearer walked by somebody else in the marketplace who wasn't wearing a toga, it showed them that they were in a class Uh, They had outclassed them. And purple was a color that symbolized wealth in the marketplace. And it's why the early followers of Jesus, they were attractive. They were because they were counterproductive. They were a compelling people, a generous people, a self-sacrificing people, because they followed Jesus to shatter what he taught and how he lived about the world that he entered into. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say, do not show favoritism. The church, will, this new community that I'm forming, will not be another place where people climb the ladder. We fight in our day, don't we? We have debates, philosophical debates with schools, even sports teams, about should we wear uniforms or should people be allowed to dress like they dress? And part of that, as I understand the debate, uh, I've got three kids in school, but I understand, as I understand the debate, there's a, well, a uniform does this. It, it, it displays uniformity and it re- relaxes the student. And some say, well, it doesn't let them express their individuality. Sports teams debate whether the back of, or the name should be placed on the back of the jersey. And some teams and some sports do it to show humility that it's not about an individual, it's about a team. And then other um, people, radio talk show hosts and people yell at teams and leagues and say, it's why your ratings are low because you're not marketing your stars. The NBA does it as well as anybody. Market your stars. You hardly know it's a team game. They market their stars so much. So clothing, outward apparel can do a lot and it can say a lot. And it did back then. Not just seating at the auditoriums, the events and the feast but clothing, and not just that, but the legal world. The legal world then, if you were at the top, if you were in the first three of the five that I showed you, then you had rights of a citizen. But the legal world was not so much about guilt or innocence. It was about law or punishment. And law and punishment could fall harder on those at the bottom. And not so much at those in the top. And this is the world. This is the world. This is the history. And this is what's happening. And this man, Paul, who saw a light, a light that changed his life forever and would change the world. It would alter the world itself. Paul enters in to this Macedonian community this Roman colony of Philippi. And we see it in Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 20 and 21, it says this about Paul and his buddy Silas. They brought them, that's Paul and Silas, before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us by Romans to accept or to practice. So here is part of the Senate, the magistrates. Uh, There was this um, race for honor. It was this idea of you got to get to the top. 
And in this, we see Paul and his brother Silas on this missionary journey, furthering this new good news of the gospel. And this was a dangerous message. You now know, if you didn't already, why this was a dangerous message, right? Because they were saying, what? Jesus is Lord. And if they were saying Jesus, it's different if you say Jesus is Lord in Jackson, Mississippi. All right, you might get a, a look or something like that. Um, I've got a shirt that I bought at Swellophonic, Jesus Saves Bro. Sometimes I wear that around town. I get smiles and, you know, but no real persecution, some strange looks or whatever. But, but then when Paul and Silas were going into this colony and they said, Jesus is Lord, it was dangerous because what were they saying? Caesar is not Lord. And what happened? They were jeered, but more than that, they were flogged. They were stripped. They were put in prison. They were placed in cuffs the innermost cell, they were in stock and barrel. And Paul would say this in Acts 16, 37. It says this, But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial. Why didn't he get a trial? You'll see. Even though we are Roman citizens, we didn't know. And threw us into prison. And now do do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. You see, they didn't know. And maybe this is too much context on a summer Sunday. But do you see? Do you see, Paul, why now did you identify yourself? as a Roman citizen. What kind of man is this? What kind of life did he live? Why did he do this? Who, the most important question, who is he following? And Paul wanted to show the world and those who needed it and the gospel and the furtherance of the gospel is at stake. You talk about God's sovereignty. Paul is saying, I need to show the Roman world that I am a slave of a dishonored slave. And he gives up. And he makes the sacrifice. And this is the world. This society-obsessed, wealth-seeking, ladder-climbing, honor-worshipping world in which Paul delivers these words, and we're finally there. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. And the sermon is getting close to being over, if you're nervous, that we're just now reading the Scripture. (laughs) Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Do you see? Do you see how different what Jesus did and what Paul did is what nobody did then? Nobody went down the ladder. Nobody. And Jesus became a slave. Not just a slave, but a slave who faced death. And not just death, but a crucified death. 
Do you know, I think I've taught this a few Easter Sundays ago, that crucifixion was not for the top of the class. It was not for the citizens. It was only for the freedmen and for the slaves, for those at the bottom. And it was an instrument of torture and execution and display. Nobody goes down the ladder. And Jesus taking the form of a slave, a dishonored slave, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now, the great reversal. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Not a CEO, not Caesar, not a president, not a movie star, not a rock star, not a sports star, but Jesus and only him, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is so interesting to study the history and the culture and the context of the Bible. In Galatians 1.1, Paul says, I'm an apostle. In Ephesians 1.1, Paul says, I'm an apostle. In Ephesians 1.1, Paul says, I'm an apostle. But in Philippians 1.1, Paul says, I'm a slave. And only then, only in that society did he say that. Now, it's interesting. The Bible seems to contradict itself if you don't understand its back meaning. In John 15, Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, you are no longer slaves. I call you friends. So should we perish that word forever? Should we banish it from the lexicon? Why then later would Paul, who saw the light, become a friend and follower of Jesus, say this? It's because Paul knew and God used Paul as he would want to use us to be all things to all people to win some. And Paul says this to people who worship their citizenship in the Roman colony. He didn't say this in the other epistles, but in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it says this. But our, what? Our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is not here. You have been worshiping the wrong world. How transformative and life-altering is that? It's a big, big deal. So, what if we rejected ladder climbing? What if we were more like the early followers of Jesus? Maybe, or what if we thought, hey, maybe life is not about avoiding danger at all costs. Maybe it's not all about being comfortable. A couple of weeks ago, I joined a team with Van Harden and a team of 10 who went to the Dominican Republic to um, minister to one of our new partners, the Hispaniola Mountain Ministry there. And uh, there's a couple, Chris and Jordan Mixon, they're moving there. 
And it was so heartening to us to be there for a few days and to work hard, to start in the morning and finish late at night and to fix up a house that Chris and Jordan and their kids will be moving to next month or in September to begin uh, ministering there full time to say, hey, I'm leaving what's plush and what's known and what's comfortable to go to the unknown to further the gospel and to live, in many ways, a more uncomfortable life for the sake of the gospel. I want to reject a lot about this world and invest in the next one. Doesn't that do your heart good to know that, to be involved in that way? I want to give you, because Philippians 2, I think the word that stands out for the new community of Jesus followers is the word humility. And I want to give you five traits of humility that the Scripture uh, teaches. We'll run through them super fast because the sermon, as I said, is almost over. Here's what humility allows you to do. Now, let me say this real quick. Before, let me just say, there's the way of pride. And it says this in James 5. I've seen athletes, Christian athletes, after a ball game, exalt this verse on national television. But it says that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Now, all of us in some ways, well, all of us do have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, and some of us have actual enemies, people that aren't wishing us well, that are resisting our progress. But nobody in the room wants God to oppose you. Like, just nod with me if you want God on your side, right? Like, you don't want him to oppose you. And a heart that is full of pride is opposed by God, but a life of humility is one that God honors. Humility will allow you a few things. First of all, it allows you to help and get help. A few years ago, when our guy Nick Crawford and I were having lunch uh, next door at Babalu, we were talking to the waitress, and I'm really talkative and talk to pretty much everybody. And I was talking to this waitress and found out a lot about her story. And I found out that she was a single mom, and I found out that she was working a few jobs. And I found out that she had a boy who was eight years old, and toward the end of our lunch when the ticket was coming, I asked her, I said, what's, that, what's, the, what's something that your son needs? And she talked about how he needed a bed, a bunk bed, and she talked about what that would mean to him. And on that very day, Nick went back and had a plan. I'm going to get her a bunk bed. I'm going to have someone build the bed. I'm going to have it delivered. It was getting close to Christmas. It was about early to mid-December. And on Christmas, the morning of Christmas Eve, Nick has somebody deliver this custom-made, tailor-fit bunk bed to this single mom whose son really needed that. Like, we live in a world where we are called to help people. How busy are you? How preoccupied are you? How proud are you to live life on your own for yourself only, but to look and to see and to be aware and then faith without works is dead, to actually do something about it is a Jesus thing. Help, humility allows you to help and get help. A few weeks ago, a grown man came to my house and within 30 seconds, he was inside my front door. He was weeping and we hugged and we cried, and we talked. And I, in that moment, I thought, I love this guy more than ever. I wouldn't want to be him right now, but I love this guy more than ever. 
But here's the reality. I have been him, and one day I will be him again. Where you have to admit that you need help. You need help. You need help in your marriage. You need help raising your kids. You need help in your job. You need help hearing the voice of God in your life. And pride will not let you do that. Humility allows you to help and get help. Humility also, it allows you to admit when you were wrong. If you were to ask Susan, and be careful doing this, what is one area where Robert has not grown in marriage? No, I'm kidding. This would be one area where maybe I've grown just a little bit, right? There's a part of me that's like Fonzie on happy days. I just can't admit when I'm wrong. It's just very, very hard to do. But it's in admitting that. It requires humility. And that's where you can get a clean slate. That's where you can get a new beginning and a fresh start is when you admit that you're wrong. And look, when you admit that you're wrong, do you feel good? No, because you're wrong. It's humiliating. If you're honest, right, you feel bad. And can I tell you today, church, especially young people, because some of you have not been parented well at all. But look, there are worse things in life than feeling bad about yourself. All right, can I say that? There are worse things in life than feeling bad about yourself. And far worse than that is not admitting when you're wrong and staying in the wrongness and not moving forward. It is okay at times. You will need to feel really bad about yourself at times. Thirdly, humility, it allows you to be teachable. To be teachable. There is a way that seems right. A man in his own eyes, it just seems wise. But he's a fool, Proverbs 12, 15, if he's not a teachable person. Can you be corrected? To what extent are you a defensive person? To what extent when someone approaches you in the home or at the office or in your small group or a brother here at Fonder Church, brother, sister, and they approach you and your first posture is defensiveness. You're not a humble person. You're not a teachable person. You're trying to climb a ladder. You're trying to be somebody and have status and honor that ought not to be afforded to you. Humility allows you to help and get help. It allows you to admit when you're wrong. It allows you to be teachable. Lastly, or fourthly, it allows you to celebrate the successes of others. Look, I'm talking to the men in particular. Don't be the one-up guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be the guy when you hear about another man's success. Just stop and listen and speak life into that and affirm and celebrate his success right there in that moment. You don't have to beat your chest and strut your feathers and talk about what you did. If someone made the high school honor roll parents, you don't have to talk about how your kid got admitted into Harvard. And some of us do it to such an extent that we're not even telling the truth. And then we're trying to remember what we've told people, what lies we've told and who knows what, and does our story match up. Celebrate the successes of others. And lastly, humility allows you, this is my favorite, humility gives you the credibility to be a follower of Jesus. How can we follow 
a dishonored slave, one who was rich, who made himself poor, how can we live our lives, live our lives so often the way that we do? We lack credibility. Unless we get a towel and a basin and stoop low to serve other people, then we lack the credibility to be a follower of Jesus. We're inflicted in the church. We're inflicted with this, I want to receive, I want to receive, I want to receive. I come here and I want to receive. And we're like a turkey waddling into a turkey farm. What do we know about turkeys? They waddle in and they wonder who's going to feed them. And I think we might have a picture of a big, big fat turkey. And what do we know about turkeys? Turkeys, they don't fly. They don't go anywhere really far. They just eat and they get fat. And God has not designed us to waddle in and waddle out. He's designed us to live a bold, risk-taking, dangerous, uncomfortable adventure where we say, I'm going to flip the script. The path to greatness is not the seat of honor or respect in the marketplace. It's not having others call you by your title. It is taking a towel and a basin, a servant's towel with a humble posture and serving those who need help. When I was young and growing up, I went to a church that was formative in my development. And they would have an oft-repeated saying, Welcome to blank church, where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. And I admit I was young and cynical and I kind of mocked that behind the preacher's back. You would never do that, right? That's the things I say. But as I've gotten older, I'm just like, what a breath of fresh air. What a statement, what a Jesus-honoring declaration. Everybody is somebody, and we're all of, all of us are under the headship of Jesus. It's probably common when someone will ask you, hey, who's the minister at Fondren Church? It's common for you to probably say, Robert Green. That's a good answer. Not the best. You could mention one of these other ministers that we have. But what if we were a church that had hundreds of ministers who stooped low, who got down, and followed a different, different way? That life of pride and promotion the seeking of wealth and status, recognition and honor, it ends badly every time because it's empty. And the community, the intentional community that Jesus calls us into is a life of humble servanthood. Martin Luther King Jr. stood at a Birmingham church one time and he said words that echo to our day he says, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great 
because everybody can serve. Bam. You can and I can. Don't waddle in 